I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined. For African Americans across the country, June 19th or Juneteenth is both a day of mourning and a day of celebration. Waking up on a beautiful June day, June 19th, and knowing that for the first time I can get out of my bed and look at my own hands and look at my own feet and know that the day is mine and wherever those hands or feet or heart or mind takes me belongs to me. And later, the significance of nationally acknowledging America's original sin. It's been a hinge point in American history that Juneteenth really surfaced nationally as a way to recall a deeper aspect of really American history, but Black people's place in American history, and for people to have some understanding uh, of that history. Celebrating the historical legacy of Juneteenth, all ahead on Life Examined. For most of the 20th century, America's summer months have been marked by historically significant days. Think of Memorial Day, Independence Day, and Labor Day. But up until quite recently, only a handful of states, Texas included, have acknowledged June 19th as an equally significant day in American history. For African Americans, Juneteenth carries a somber remembrance. A day back in 1865, their enslaved ancestors were given their freedom— It's a day of honest reckoning that is finally getting recognition for its place in America's history. So how will you be honoring Juneteenth? And what's the historical role of music and dance in honoring this tradition? Sybil Roberts-Williams is an artist, playwright, and director of African Diaspora Studies in the Department of Performing Arts at American University. She studies the influence of African music and dance on American culture and its long history with the Black Resistance Movement. Sybil Roberts-Williams, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. Sybil, what is it like waking up on Juneteenth for you? Can, you? can you tell me about some of the thoughts you have or some of the feelings you have? So waking up on a beautiful June day, uh, June 19th, and knowing that for the first time I can get out of my bed and look at my own hands and look at my own feet and know that the day is mine and wherever those hands or feet or heart or mind takes me belongs to me would be such an incredible gift that I think I just savor the moment, right? I just sit in my own space and think, what am I going to do with my day? I can literally do anything. What does that mean? At the same time, I'd have an incredible fear because I have to say this just to be fair, Juneteenth, while it certainly is something to be celebrated, it also opened the door for a whole, for a great amount of hardship because now we have a class and a group of people who are not citizens, but they are also not really, they're not enslaved, but they're not citizens. So what set of laws is gonna protect me? Right, And, and keeping all this in mind, How should a day like this be celebrated? There are several rituals I've heard about, and most of them were lovely. They're church programs. So you would have the children recite poems. You would have uh, the children do dances and small presentations, and you'd have major picnics. And to me, that seems really appropriate that students are given, or children, are given for example, a line of poetry for from Phyllis Wheatley or from another poet, or maybe even just a lovely lyric from a spiritual. And that is where they begin their journey into understanding who they are and to really identifying. So I think one of the ways in which this has largely been celebrated and beautifully has been with children's church programs. I think that's just a lovely thing to do. Um, to have children sing spirituals and to really learn them and to sing the verses of them is is something that, um, and and especially if you're singing them for the first time as a free person, that is really an amazing thing. And to be singing them as a free child, uh, I can't imagine anything more powerful than that. Right. And can you tell us a little bit more about the significance and the history of the African-American spiritual? Because it plays, I think, a a really important role in African-American history. And I love talking about the spirituals because they, they are prayers. They are prayers. And they are prayers that do exactly what we just talked about. And that is they acknowledge 
the power and potential of God, of God to accomplish the, the impossible, or that nothing is impossible to God, but they also acknowledge human suffering in a great deal. So if we take the early spirituals, we take the earliest form of spiritual that we know of, and that is the ring shout. It does, it beautifully blends the understanding of the power of African ritual and the power of African faith in a Christian context that allows for Africanisms to travel across the Atlantic and still find a powerful home in enslaved, transported Africans. And what do I mean by that? I'm talking about the ring shout. The ring shout is the earliest form of sacred song, African sacred song that we have in this country. It began when Africans came onto these shores at some point in the 18th century. And we have songs like Adam in the Garden, um, which is nothing more than, or the ring shouts themselves were nothing more than these dances or, or songs performed in a circle with counterclockwise movement that allowed the spirit to enter the body of the host, creating a sort of an ecstasy that then allowed for healing and messages and other things to be conveyed to the community. This is, this is African. It's an African tradition. It literally is dancing to call forth the spirit, singing to call forth the spirit, and then bringing about healing. The songs, however, the lyrics, i.e. Adam in the Garden, um, are Christian lyrics. So it's literally taking this African movement and setting it to Christian lyrics, and we get something called the Ring Shout, which would be pervasive throughout um, the low country, South Carolina, for many years. So that's the beginnings of the spiritual how important is movement in a lot of the traditions that you're talking about? For example, uh, you mentioned the the circular idea of some of the spirituals. Can you say a little bit more about the power and importance of movement? Dance has always been, again, the way in which Africans worshipped. And I'm speaking broadly when I say Africans. I'm not speaking to a specific tradition because the traditions are varied, and we all know that. So I just want to say that to our listeners. I'm not generalizing um, out of out of ignorance. I'm generalizing to make a broad point. And the broad point is that the, in the African tradition, the God responded, God, God's ancestors responded to the call of the drum. They responded to the sound of the drum. So when we start talking about African dance, it is performed to the drum. It is literally dance in, in the African tradition makes the rhythm visible. So if for some reason you couldn't hear and you just saw the dancer's movement, you might see three or more time signatures in a dancer's body. The hands are moving at one rhythm, the head is moving at another rhythm, the feet are yet moving to another rhythm. But all of those rhythms are doing something. They are connecting the dancer physically and bodily to the earth and in that connection calling forward all the power of the ancestors and other gods that are sometimes thought to reside in the earth. And to get to that communication, you had to be able to move, to dance. And so that tradition becomes very important, particularly when we begin to look at um, Vodun, um, Santeria, and other practices where literally there were specific dances assigned to the worship of certain deities. So that that um, movement becomes a call to Ogun, a call to Legba, a call to Dambalawedo, a call. So that dance has always been prayer as well, right? And so that's that's always been very true. In fact, the reason why the ring shout to some extent fell out of favor is because it was so African in its prayer form that as Christianity became more sophisticated among some African-Americans, it was thought to be heathenish or uh, less than, we don't want to represent ourselves in that way. This is not the way in which Christianity itself should move because dance as prayer is so African 
It's so African. But we never lost it because ecstasy, African-American Christianity is marked by ecstasy, the ability of the spirit to enter the body. And when the spirit does that, we've seen it in churches. I mean, I remember seeing it in church where somebody gets, they shout, they get happy. The body lifts itself. There's this intricate footwork that becomes ultimately in secular forms, um, the Lindy Hop and, and, and the Charleston and other things. There's intricate footwork that is also percussive that's calling forth the spirit. So it's, it's an interesting connection. And if we look at contemporary dance, we see beautiful work like Alvin Ailey's Revelations pay homage to that. Right. And what's it like for you? when you're having a fully embodied experience with the music, whether it's responding to a drum or moving with a community to a spiritual or a song, what's it like just to be you or, or to be in your body during those experiences? Well, it is the most eloquent moment of communication that I can ever experience. I started out in my artistic practice as a dancer. And part of the reason for that was because it allowed my entire being to be present for whatever the spirit, my own creative energy, or the social moment demands. And so when we start talking about what does it mean to dance, it means to allow the body to embody a truth and to express it so forcefully that the energy of that expression, well, burst forth as sort of an, it becomes an immediate, immediate connection to everything around you physically, not intellectually, not physically, like the, to dance is to embody, embody create, creative concepts and to embody prayer and to embody knowing. Um, that kind of embodiment just, I don't even know how to explain it, to be honest. It's, it's beyond explanation what dance allows the body to do, how it allows it to communicate, how it allows you to be present, you know. It's, it's, I think about it even in South African protests, like we were, we were in South Africa two years ago with a group of AU students and we were walking through Soweto and there was um, a veteran of a lot of the protests that had been there, going on there. Um, and they were teasing us. They were like, you Americans don't know how to protest. You just walk down the street yelling. You're just walking along. You're not doing, let me show you how to protest. And we suddenly hit, come on, let's go. Let's move. And so we were jogging, like we had this pace, we had this furor, we had this, and suddenly we were moving as one entity. And we were all on the same frequency. And I think at that moment, we could have chanted down the walls of Jericho. You know, we were so powerful. But that's, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's that's a wonderful image, thinking of you there, taking all this in, watching the South African protests. And it, it makes me wonder, how, how then did you reflect on the protests happening in the U.S.? Would you have preferred to have seen some of this unified and powerful energy that you witnessed in South Africa? If you're going to do that, then there has to be, even even amongst the practitioners, once you ground that energy in your body, you are literally ready for anything. And there were already people at such an emotionally high state that you, because that, that too is what dance does. Like it raises the energy level. You've experienced this as well. And certainly I have with DC go-go music. Again, there's that percussive energy, right? Where you're just, it, it takes over and it becomes hypnotic. It's hypnotic. And if you aren't really well disciplined and well grounded, it can spiral off into ways that create all kinds of other problems. So I think it would, 
I, I, I thought about, wow, what would happen if we came at them like the children in, in Soweto? What would happen if we came at them like the past book burners in Sharpsville? And perhaps what would have happened is exactly what happened in Soweto and Sharpsville. Yeah. And how, how do you sit with some of this stuff or, or make sense of it um, in the context of the modern American protest? I want to start out by saying I thought, in all honesty, prior to Black Lives Matter, I was like, I will never march for anything else. I am just so tired of marching. I did it all through my college years. I've done it. I'm just done with it. Um, And then I saw all these beautiful people of all hues, you know, African-Americans and all kinds of allies marching, and they saw the responses they were getting. I saw that not from law enforcement, not from policymakers, but from people all around the world, that this thing caught fire and everybody came out, even if they came out to protest against the, the Black Lives Matter marches, it, it, it made people focus their energy on something that we need to focus our energy on. And that was, that was an important and wonderful moment. However, because we still have yet to get hate crime laws on the books that that really speak to anti-blackness, because we still haven't gotten the reforms in, in police and um, policing that I think we need to get and don't know that if we will get them. And because I am not quite sold on the fact that a lot of the young people marching really have I, I want them to, yes, they have the passion and they can go forward, so I will not say that. I want them to connect this historical moment with previous historical moments and then place themselves into the future. I want them to really step into the black radical imagination and build the world they want. See it and build it, right? And. It has been said that art is the genesis of a people's liberation, right? And if that is true, then I want our young artists to be leading these protests with the kind of music and art they're making. Right. How do we lead with the arts or the poetry or the music or just these, uh, these expressions of beauty? Yes, I think that is the large question facing us now. And I think that is the one, and it's got multiple answers. There's no right one right way, obviously. But one of the beautiful things about the civil rights movement, as you know, is that it had a soundtrack. And as you know, one of the powerful things about Black Lives Matter with Kendrick Lamar and others, her, uh, it has a soundtrack. And so how do we build on that soundtrack? How do we build our... How do we continue to tap into the black radical imagination with all of our artists when what's up against us so often is crass commercialism that doesn't allow the kind of time and reflection to really build in that way, right? And so I want young people to take the time out to really reflect and continue to build on a very powerful tradition of song as prayer and prayer as power to do what they know they have the birthright given to them to do. It's James Baldwin who said, your crown's already been bought and paid for. All you have to do is put it on. Yeah, and I was wondering if you could talk about the importance of leading with art instead of politics, although uh, perhaps in this case you can't, you can't really separate them. In the African tradition, you don't. There is no distinction. Um, one of the most important African aesthetics is efficacy. Literally, if it didn't serve the community, it wasn't made. And so whatever we're contending with, first and foremost, has to serve us. But when you start thinking about it that way, what does serve us? And we've got a big hurdle in our path. And we talk about this a lot, me and my colleagues, when we talk about hip hop, which is one of the most powerful aesthetic movements that we've had 
since the black arts movement easy, but was so immediately co-opted and commercialized that I can even say, I won't even say commercialized, that has literally been weaponized against us. And so now you've got to take back the power of that tool that began as a way to report out to people what was happening in the Bronx, what was happening in underserved communities, which is exactly what Black Lives Matter wants us to do, focused on marginalized communities, take or marginalized people in the community, take that medium and any other medium and begin to speak in the language of the people who need it, to the people who need it, for the people who need it, by the people who need it, and not simply as a means of getting a contract. Who needs to hear this? What do they need to hear? How can it move us forward in the larger conversation about who and what we need to be in this historical moment? What do we think? How do we, how do we define ourselves? What do we think of ourselves beyond what we hear on the radio and beyond what we see on television, right? Arts should lead and never follow. If that is the case, then what is the most progressive thing we can put forward about ourselves? And I think it's rooted in the black imagination. What black radical imagination? What is the world we want to build? What does it look like? And I'm not talking about rehashing problems. We know the problem of police brutality. We know the problem of drug abuse. We know the problem of of gang violence. How do we speak into existence a world beyond that by creating beauty? Have there been any works of art that have really struck you and that um, reflect on some of these big themes that we're talking about? I'd love to hear about a few of them. Yeah, there have been several. Actually, there's there's been a wonderful onslaught um, of all kinds of, of things that have spoken to me recently. I'll, I'll take two pop culture ones. There is um, Queen Sugar that began as a novel and Oprah picked up and created a series on the Oprah, that was Ava DuVernay, who picked up the series and, and, and created it um, for Oprah's network. And it is the celebration of black joy and black life. Yes, it's, it's rooted in the South and it's about a, a sugar farm that has been maintained by an African-American family for generations and they face the same struggles of maintaining this farm that all black farmers face as well as all they treated police brutality and, and uh, immigrant uh, inequality and labor inequality. They treat everything we're talking about now but always ending with the celebration of black joy and resilience in who we are. So Queen Sugar, and one of my students was the, was the first person who said, watch this. She's like, you gotta watch Queen Sugar. So I did, and, and it, it's amazing. So there is that. The second thing is Lovecraft Country um, that came on, on cable um, this past season. Oh my God. It uses the poetry of Sonia Sanchez. It has picked up the work of Gil Scott Heron. It has picked up the work of Amiri Baraka. It has picked up the poetry of Intazaki Shange for colored girls. And it set it in this mythical sort of pre-civil rights past with this magical black family doing battle in a very real segregated social construct but with their magical forces against white magical forces and that kind of imagining that kind of radical imagine suppose we go back into the past and imagine ourselves as wizards and we move forward through time using the words of our artists to cast spells and pull us into our full power Boy, that is something that I, I am deeply, deeply cherished and challenged. The work of um, Adrienne Marie Brown has been, she's an activist, but she's also written a book called Pleasure Activism, which is, it's got spells, it's got practical advice, it's got a bit of everything. 
and I I'm loving that work too and my staid standby I always return to in times such as these is Alice Walker I always return to the work of Alice Walker um, because I think she began writing back in 68 69 about a world that as a black woman I want to see well, if we finish this interview where we started today, I-, I wonder if you have any last reflections or thoughts on Juneteenth or would want to share how how you might spend this important day. I would light a candle to my ancestors. I would light a, a white candle and I put a bowl of water out next to that white candle and I get the plate of the best foods that I think they'd want to eat. It may not even be foods that I eat, but black-eyed peas and ham and greens and mac and cheese and cornbread or fried fish or whatever, and I put it down, and I would circle it with a ring of cascaria and cornmeal, and I would call them all with my stamper stick to be present and to share in this feast of goodness for the day. And I would spend the day writing words of celebration or better still, capturing the words from their hearts that are transmitted to me on this day of celebration. Sybil Roberts-Williams is Director of African-American and African Diaspora Studies in the Department of Performing Arts at American University. Sybil, thank you so much for this conversation today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. We'll have more on Juneteenth right here on Life Examined after this short break. Stay with us. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Sybil Roberts-Williams describe how music, dance, and spirituality are integral to the African-American identity. But how important is the teaching and honoring of Black history for America's identity? For many in the U.S., the death of George Floyd has marked a turning point in the fight for racial justice. And it also re-energized calls for a deeper reflection on the history of slavery and systemic racism. Peniel Joseph is professor of history at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin and the author of The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. Peniel Joseph, welcome to Life Examined. Great being here. Well, this is uh, a historic morning to wake up to, and, and I wanted to have you just take a moment to reflect on what Juneteenth means to you. Was this a date that was ever commemorated in your family, or are there stories about it that take you back in time? Well, we celebrated Juneteenth in New York City. So in the New York City that I grew up in in the 1980s, um, we had folks who were transplants from Texas who brought the holiday with them to New York City. So we understood what it meant. Um, and so really even before last year, I had been very much aware of Juneteenth and why people um, celebrated that. And by the time I went to college, we, you know, there were folks from Texas as well who were students uh, at Stony Brook University who also encouraged all of us to celebrate it. So in certain ways, Juneteenth was very similar to um, Kwanzaa in that way, not as big as Kwanzaa because you needed people with Texas connections to explain it to you. And once they did, it was sort of like a light bulb and you got all in. Um, and it was a it was a really it was a celebration. Well, you now teach at the University of Texas in Austin. So now you're kind of um, at, at the center of, of the ritual there. What's it like being in Texas? Well, Texas certainly has been celebrating Juneteenth. Um, And Texas is really, uh, you know, sort of uh, at a moral (laughs) crossroads in the sense that this is a celebration, a a holiday that's been commemorated statewide, 
Um, and at the same time, Texas has been at the at the center of of efforts really to push back against um, the the new birth of freedom that Juneteenth represents with voter suppression and efforts to um, stop the teaching of uh, basically black history and American history um, that talks about the truth of, of race relations in this country and talks about racial oppression. Yet at the same time, Texas Emancipation Park in Houston, which used to be owned by African-Americans in the late 19th century, um, became a, a huge site of Juneteenth celebrations. And so you think about Houston, Galveston, uh, you think about places like Conroe, um, Austin, uh, uh, and so many little tiny black freedom towns in Texas throughout the late 19th century and into the 20th and the 21st century uh, celebrated Juneteenth. So Texas is a really uh, pivotal place. And so so goes Texas, so goes the country in a way. Um, so it's a really important place to be in uh, on Juneteenth. How would you explain the significance of this to, to somebody who's not as acquainted with with Juneteenth? Yeah, you know, I would explain the significance of Juneteenth very similar to how you would explain the significance of the 4th of July <laughs> and say, why is this so, so important? And the 4th of July is important for Americans and at times the world because July 4th, 1776 um, is illustrative of this this new experiment uh, in terms of democracy and, and new experiment in freedom. But there were pitfalls and there were shortcomings. And so when we think about Juneteenth, even though it's not the ratification of the 13th Amendment, which doesn't happen until December 6th, 1865, it's not the, the, the sort of official end of, of the Civil War, which happens at the Appomattox Courthouse in April, um, but it really is the beginning of something um, new, because on June 19th, 1865, that's when um, in Texas, uh, uh, Major General uh, Gordon Grange, uh, Granger uh, really announced that the, the Civil War was over, that slavery had ended. And what's interesting about Texas is that you had plantation owners from as far away as Louisiana and other places who sort of headed um, to Texas as the Civil War continued and New Orleans fell and Atlanta fell. And so there's still, they brought with them over a quarter of a million uh, enslaved Black Americans. And so really, even as late as um, June 19th, sort of the last, uh, last uh, Civil War battle is fought in maybe Brownsville, um, Texas, uh, they were in, they were African-Americans who didn't realize that, you know, their, their freedom had been, really freedom had been won through their own activity. Obviously, uh, black folks who were in the former Confederacy, a lot of them escaped and became known as what you call wartime contraband uh, in, in the parlance of the time. Um, and so it's, it's really a very important date. And that date, there's celebrations, but there's also people trying to um, leave and and who are who are being accosted, who are being physically threatened. Some people are killed uh, trying to leave uh, plantations, especially in East Texas, uh, on that day. And it's really following the following year, as early as 1866, where you start to see commemorations in Texas, uh, commemorations all throughout um, of of what that day means. So I would I would tell them that it's really for somebody who sort of imagines uh, America as just an idea and not just a place, that 1776 is one vision of freedom, but then 1865 on Juneteenth is another. And really Juneteenth becomes the answer to a question that Frederick Douglass asked in 1852 uh, in, in Rochester, New York, what to the Negro is your 4th of July? You know, I think one of the, the hardest thing to do for for anyone is to be able to hold two conflicting things in their mind and and I'd imagine on a day like this it's one that can be filled with deep grief and sadness but perhaps also one of hope and of the future and I wonder how you're able to hold those two things together in your mind that's that's a great question I think that black people have always had to hold those things together uh in their minds um 
Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, the very famous black intellectual who was also a founder of the NAACP, uh, called it double consciousness, this idea of being, you know, American and, and African-American, black American. Um, and so when we think about that, I think that, you know, last year and the what people are calling the racial political reckoning, but really the George Floyd protests, the Black Lives Matter marches, really um, opened up such a huge floodgate. And it's been a hinge point in American history that Juneteenth really surfaced nationally as a way to recall a deeper aspect of really American history, but Black people's place in American history, and for people to have some understanding uh, of that history um, and how it's so shot through full of um, mourning and and celebration. Um, and that struggle continues uh, really well past the time it should have <laughs> uh, ended in terms of that struggle. So I think that um, the the real, yeah, I do have mixed mixed feelings because I'm, I'm really pleased that people are um, finding out about Juneteenth and really thinking of it as... Um, thinking of an African-American holiday as an American holiday, you know, like, so, so to think of it, uh, because that history is, is our history, Texas history, even as Texas likes to, um, a la California, but through a different ideological perspective, think of itself as a separate Republic. Texas is, is America, just like California is America. And that, that history is filled with huge, um, innovation and celebrations, but also with huge, uh, tragedy and trauma and I think this is a day we can um, really reflect on that, but also think of how do we both mourn and celebrate and then move our understanding of that history into action uh, collectively for the nation. Yeah, and so much of this has to do with with education and politics, of course, but if we stay with education for a moment, um, you've talked a lot about and written very eloquently about critical race theory and this idea of, of real honest truth-telling taking place in our schools across the country. Will, will you talk to me a little bit about why you think this is so important, particularly for us to think about on a day like this? Yes, certainly. You know, the term critical race theory has become expansively redefined by the right wing in the United States. So it's important for us to say, what is it and what is it not? So critical race theory does not necessarily equal black history. Right. Critical race theory is actually just um, a subfield of critical legal studies. Uh, and we can date it back to 1973 and race, crime and the law by the late Harvard University law professor Derek Bell that just made an argument that um, the way in which law schools were were teaching law and the law and legal studies, they had a real glaring omission. They weren't talking about race. Race has shaped American law and society from the birth of the republic, right? And so all critical race theory was, and continues to be, is an intervention really primarily in legal studies that says, look, race is a constitutive element of the way in which the law is practiced, applied, interpreted, whether or not the law is explicitly talking about race. And this goes not just for Black people, Native Americans, Asian Americans, we've done all kinds of things where we think about race with immigration restrictions, obviously slavery, the courts, voting rights. Uh, and all this is is a, an effort to say, let's be honest about that vis-a-vis -vis the law. Now, of course, you're going to have people who are critical race theorists who are connected to other disciplines beyond the law, sociology, history, anthropology. But it's become this catch-all phrase, very similar to the phrase political correctness. And it, it sort of, it sort of uh, is designed uh, to divert attention to efforts to actually talk about American history and our curriculum and the full expanse of American history. So when we think about that full expanse, it means that, yes, we're going to talk about successes and triumphs. And you're going to say World War II and talk about the greatest generation uh, you could talk about the founding fathers and mothers and Thomas Jefferson was still a brilliant person. Um, but you're also going to tell folks about um, our students, our young people about racial slavery. You're going to tell them not just about the Tulsa massacre, but you're going to tell them in 1921. But you're going to talk to them about Juneteenth and say, look, this was a new birth of American freedom. 
And when we go back to Juneteenth, we can say, look, um, right there on that day, there were still places in the United States before the ratification of the 13th Amendment who made it illegal for black people to be literate and to learn how to read, even on that day, right? And, and what, what kind of questions does that bring out? Right? These are really, really important facets of our history. And it's not, um, I think some people think when you study this history, it's somehow either a downer or you're being anti-American or unpatriotic, but it's really the highest form of patriotism is looking at this, the, the, the fullness of our history, right? Um, and, and teaching students that this is the journey that we've taken uh, and they can see themselves in that journey, both in terms of the uplifting parts, but also the flaws and the shortcomings. And you come out stronger when you know the truth, right? You come out stronger when you know the truth. And really, despite that hard history, Black people, by and large, historically, have done nothing but show real um, love and fidelity and loyalty for the country. And that's another very, very important aspect of this history, too, right? So, over, you know, 200,000 Black men fought in the Civil War. Women were there as, as uh, uh, nurses and, and um, other aspects because women couldn't fight in combat uh, until um, really deep into the 20th and early 21st century. Uh, but you also had Harriet Tubman and folks who are on the front lines uh, of that struggle as well. So this is hugely important. And it's it's a shame that there are so many people trying to stop this history from being taught. So Juneteenth provides us a context to really um, move in a different direction, really, for the first time in American history and to commemorate the people we should be commemorating. Right. How do you understand the the kind of blunt reactions to this idea of critical race theory in more conservative areas of the United States, or frankly, even more moderate areas. How, 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 does, how does this all sit with you? How, how, how do you make sense of the arguments in the pushback? Well, I mean, I think it's disappointing, but there's always been um, pushback and a backlash to any perceived uh, vision of Black citizenship and dignity in the United States. After 2020, um, the strategy for conservatives have been to double down uh, on voter suppression and black disenfranchisement. And it's because it's a strategy that has historically worked. And so critical race theory has become a new boogeyman. And they tried many. They tried the word woke. You know, you had conservatives talking about woke mobs and woke thugs who are coming to get your AR-17 rifles and AR-15 rifles. Um, but what has really stuck is critical race theory. They tried with the 1619 Project, the Pulitzer Prize winning project by Nicole Hannah-Jones, and certainly she's been implicated in this by being denied tenure at University of North Carolina. But what is stuck is this idea of critical race theory, this idea that you turn black history into this critical race theory uh, that is, is, is trying to make your five-year-old white kindergartner feel bad about themselves. And, and you're saying, hey, my five-year-old has nothing to do with racial oppression, right? It has nothing to do with any of this. Um, and that's what, that's what is stuck. Uh, so it's not surprising, but I think the critical race theory backlash should not allow us to ignore the even bigger problem, which is over 400 separate voter suppression bills um, in 47 states uh, to try to ensure um, that this this minority will be in power uh, for, for, you know, in perpetuity. I want to ask you a question about leadership and black leadership in particular, something you've written a lot about. For example, uh, your book, The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. Why, why do you think we haven't seen perhaps a, a leader of, of that stature or magnitude um, present in the last 30 to 40 years? Yeah, that's a great question. I think leadership changes over time and the society and the social and political context that lead, leaders emerge from change. So um, I've actually been writing a new book about this time period and, and one of the, the, the themes is leadership. And I think what you see in terms of leadership post Malcolm and Martin is that one, 
there have been these uh, juxtapositions between top-down and bottom-up leadership. And I think 2020 uh, sort of represented in one level the end of a certain kind of black politics and the beginning of another kind of black politics. And, And I'll tell you what I mean. So after the civil rights movement, what you do see, at least at the high level of black politics, you know, Uh, the Congressional Black Caucus, over time, not initially, uh, folks who are running for senator, uh, folks who are trying to run for president, um, but also people who are in corporate America, is this real bifurcation between protests versus politics, these insiders versus people who are going to be on the outside. Uh, The BLM 1.0 in 2013, after Trayvon Martin, is really key here to leadership. What you start seeing with the Black Lives Matter protesters, especially um, organized and in a lot of ways led by black women, uh, black queer women, black queer feminist women, really interesting, interesting um, um, stuff happening because these are some of the same folks who in earlier contexts of black leadership are marginalized because they're queer, marginalized because they're feminist, marginalized because they're women. No women were allowed to speak at the March on Washington in 1963, which is extraordinary, which is extraordinary. Women were some of the biggest organizers on the ground. Women are the ones who helped King organize. There'd be no King without black women. None of them can speak in 1963. There's something really dramatically, passionately wrong about that, but that's the context of patriarchy at the time. And so when we think about leadership now, I would argue that we do have Malcolms and Martins and Ella Bakers and Fannie Lou Hamers, but we no longer have just top-down leadership. So these are movements that have become much more diffuse, and by being more diffuse, they've actually become more powerful. Ella Baker, who's the founder of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, a Black woman who was born in 1903, who was a feminist organizer, and she famously said that strong people didn't need strong leaders. What she meant by that is that those hugely iconic leaders like Malcolm and like Martin were so important, but on one level, they could easily be toppled both through character assassination, the FBI, or actually physical assassination, and then movements drifted uh, in their aftermath. I think what's extraordinary about leadership now is that we do have these grassroots leaders. We have so many of them, but we don't have just one. And I think that that has made the movement stronger, even though I think it's made the movement um, harder to identify in people's minds with just one figure. And that's what I think is so extraordinary, not just about BLM, but people like Stacey Abrams and how they've, they've changed the whole way in which we think about leadership. She's at this point unelected, figure, former state official who helped organize a movement to turn Georgia blue, uh, really in an extraordinary way. Well, I I want to finish with this, and it references one Black woman leader who we've had on this show. This is Melina Abdullah, part of the Black Lives Matter movement in Los Angeles. Um, She talked about this movement now and and many in the past as, as a spiritual or religious movement. And I wonder if you'd have any thoughts on that. Oh, yes. I mean, Melina, I'm a big fan. I'm a big admirer of Melina. Melina is doing heroic work and, and really a brilliant figure. Um, yes. No, I do think this is a religious movement. I'm, I'm a Christian um, uh, Black Baptist by way of a New York City storefront church uh, in Queens growing up. Um, I do think this is a religious movement, but, but really in a secular way, um, in the sense that this is... Uh, we are at a moral fork in the road. We are at a moral crossroads. And so much of this movement has always been uh, the Black freedom struggle. Uh, Juneteenth has always been deeply uh, embedded uh, in this belief in God, in this belief in a higher power, this belief in in redemption. Uh, the, the SCLC, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Southern Creed, Christian Leadership Conference, their motto was to redeem the soul of America. So this idea of redemption, one, a biblical redemption taken from the Old Testament, and Dr. King is always quoting from Amos and and the book of Jeremiah, and and Amos, uh, uh, justice uh, rolled down like uh, like a mighty stream. Um, And it's, it's really important, this idea that 
um, we have faith, right? And and I think it's faith both in God, but also faith in uh, a higher power and in humanity. Uh, Dr. King's notion of a beloved community is really, really important here. He defined that beloved community as not just a community that would be rid of racial and economic injustice. He said we had to start with a revolution of values to create that community, to create what he called a love ethic that uh, made him always shy away from what he called enemy politics. Dr. King didn't even think of white supremacists as his enemies, so to speak. He thought of them as misguided. Uh, and he actually did did love them, uh, which is extraordinary. Now, all of us, not all of us uh, are going to reach that high level, that state of grace of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but it's something to um, aspire to. So he called us toward this aspirational citizenship that is absolutely connected to um, a, a, a larger faith, both, I think, in God, but also a larger faith in in humanity. It's it's the kind of faith that allows us to think of other people's children as our own. And as a parent, I think that this is very very powerful because when you when you have children, you know how much you you love your own children. And and until you have children, whether they are adopted, biological, whatever, however you have them, you don't know the power of that. You might have felt that in a different way because somebody loved you, but to feel that you would you know, you would die for your own children is very, very powerful. Now, if you can feel that for other people's children, people who you don't know, uh, people who you haven't met, but who you know matter because your faith uh, in God and your faith in humanity tells you that they matter, that's unbelievably powerful. And that's why I think Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is such a hugely uh, important figure because when you hear his speeches, when you read his books, uh, and really the best book that Dr. King uh, writes on this is both Strength to Love and Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos, Our Community, that delves deep into these issues. You, you, you understand the resonating power of his, of his faith, but also his political thought and his vision uh, for American democracy and also world peace. He called the entire uh, world uh, the, the world house. He said we were all... Um, uh, related in a, in a single garment of mutual destiny. And if we understood that, um, we would all be better off. I've been speaking with Peniel Joseph, professor of history and founding director for the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in Austin. Peniel, thanks so much for the time today. We appreciate it. Hey, I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for joining us. We'll see you next week.